So my first experience in business was not as a creative, it was as somebody who was just overwhelmed with this, just watching something fail bit by bit and drown. And I came back with a semester left to finish my business degree. So I was like, oh, I'll, I'll dabble in fashion after I graduate. But 9-11 happened. Um, and things changed for my father because five years later, he went bankrupt and my family lost everything. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go through that. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. My name is Amar Bilal, and I am the co-founder of 1432 and a professor at Parsons School of Design, New York, and at Columbia University. Um, and I am originally from Pakistan. My work revolves around the intersection of social impact and fashion. And so I'd love to start in Pakistan because it seems like your 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 family's background was also in fashion. They were into like manufacturing and exporting sportswear. So could you tell me about what it was like growing up around that uh, those interests? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so since I teach entrepreneurship, Sam, my the first thing I say in class is what I'm going to say to you is a lot of entrepreneurs forget to acknowledge, which I'm about to, the privilege of being born in a family that's running business and what it, what kind of early skills you get to sleep with risk and wake up with it. So uh, my background, my, my father uh, was one of uh, the, uh, one of the largest textile manufacturers in the 80s and 90s out of Pakistan. If you bought a hoodie from Nike or any of the big box brands in the 90s, and it said, there's a very good chance it was made in Pakistan, unlike Bangladesh today or China. And um, chances are my family was somewhat involved in it. So my, my career is a reaction to all the cotton I smelt and the heaps of clothing I saw wasted, uh, or I played around in or climbed mountains of that clothing as a kid. My mom, God bless her, put her two younger sisters through college. And by the time I was born, they were settled in Boston because they went to school there. And uh, my mother, always wanted, always knew that I would be involved or her kids would be involved in some kind of development work. Um, so she made sure that all of us were American citizens back in the 80s because she wanted us to be part of this world, which, you know, for the good and the bad. So Boston came about because of that, because we had family there and my mother had uh, set roots there even before we were born. Uh, but one thing I can tell you that if you want to make an impact in the developing world, you got to sound local. If you sound like a foreigner, it really is. So my mother made sure that I, all of us to sound local, went to school in Pakistan till we were um, 16. So I was going to school in Pakistan, but was born in Boston and living in Boston, you know, uh, four, times a, four times a year, spring, spring break, summers and so on. Geneva or Switzerland has, is famous for their schooling and a lot of international kids being there because of the UN. So my mother made sure that we went to summer school in Geneva so we could get exposed to other cultures 
beyond Pakistan and the United States, which felt like two corners of the world. And so once you you had the education, both from school and from all of these travels, when and how did you decide to start your own label? You know, in true entrepreneurial sense, it was like sticking it to the man, right? And at that, at 21, the man is your dad, <laughs> who's this uber successful, respectable guy. In my senior year of business school, I went for a junior year abroad program, except that in my business school, it was an internship. Um, and I went to London and I was like, oh, I've always been interested in fashion. And my family had framed my interest as just a hobby. They're like, yeah, go play with your color pencils, but you come to work and run your business. And I really flourished in that internship. And I realized this is what I want to do. And I came back with a semester left to finish my business degree. So I was like, oh, I'll, I'll dabble in fashion after I graduate. But 9-11 happened. And things changed for my father because five years later, he went bankrupt and my family lost everything. But centering back on like like 2001, like you, 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 9-11 happens. Um, but in like 2002, you, you worked at Amar Textiles. So... When it, when when a company's that when a company is shipping out a, almost close to a million units a month of that and employs more than three thousand people, it takes years for it to close down. So at twenty one, my first experience with business was walking into a company, being a kid, not knowing anything, and actually being at the head of a company or inheriting a company that was failing. So my first experience in business was not as a creative, was as somebody who was just overwhelmed with this. So, that, and to answer your question, how did I get into fashion? I always knew I wanted to do fashion. So I did not know, I have no technical training. So while I was part of something that's failing, that promises enormous amounts of wealth, if it turns around, my passion for just doing something that I love meant that in the evenings, I would go to the houses of teachers from art schools and tell them to teach me how to draw and then the next morning, I would try that stuff out with folks who worked in the company. So in 2005, how does your, your work life change? So eventually, my father was like, either you're going to be a part of this or you're going to peddle 100 buck jeans. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to be a part of this. And he was very upset with me. And I basically started working at my mom's shop. My mom had a retail shop that just carried basic t-shirts and sweatpants. It wasn't a brand, but it was a place where everybody went to buy their basics. And I was like, I will work for free here, mom, and just design stuff if you just carry it. And she's like, sure, I can't pay you, but do it. So I, uh, I started working for free there and people started taking notice of what I did. I never took a salary. I never had an office space, but I worked out of my mother's store and launched my brand there by doing crazy shit shooting writing an English language rock song that ended up winning an MTV award in Pakistan and and doing shooting films before anybody was fashion designers with editing videos and trying to jimmy the system and get exposure and yeah created a brand out of that can you tell me a little bit about that brand and when you felt that it was it had momentum outside of you know uh your your community the most honest thing i can tell you is that 24 <laughs> i didn't know my head from my ass right like you and sometimes when i teach now i miss that sense of 
lack of awareness, so to speak, because you just go for it. You, you, you're just shooting darts, right? You don't know which one's going to hit, but you have this drive of just being uninhibited with your ideas. So I knew one thing that I did not have the money to promote myself on a national level in Pakistan. So I, and I had a product. I had access to producing that product. And what, what product? I was just producing samples, right? It cost nothing to make samples. I was just making samples and I had a place that was going to hang the samples. But how are people going to know about it and how are we going to sell it? So I just kept on coming up with ways where leveraging my relationships and my friends. This is pre-social media time, right? So leveraging my relationships and my friends where we would create content that would give us national level exposure just to build the brand irrelevant of what the product was. Um, and I kept on doing it a couple of times and I was part of that. You know how even today, if you're part of that underground community that is musicians, dancers, fashion designers, artists, right? If you're part of that underbelly of any city, you will jimmy the system. That hasn't changed. It's just that what you create ends up in the digital space. But it's still the same thing. There are always going to be folks who are going to be part of that community of creatives that are going to be on to what the next thing is that doesn't have a ton of financing behind it. How do you feel like you entered that community of creatives? I, if I knew I'd be doing it right now, it gets harder and harder when you're older. But I, Sam, I think, I think it, it, it revolves around being extremely authentic and being an authentic contributor to the community, right? So if you are part of, look at all the brands today that propel this, right? That just blow up. Um, they always have the first hundred or 300 or thousand people, let's say, who are diehard followers of that community who've been there for a long time. It might be a community of skating. It might be a community of, right? There, 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 there's, there's a common denominator of interest, habit, or expertise that ties them together and they drink and eat and travel and create content and watch together. And I think authenticity, right? Like any social circle, you're an authentic, effective contributor to that. It, 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 it also helps if you're dating, if you're dating a supermodel. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this part, but I was lucky enough that at that time, one of Pakistan's really famous actresses um, and models was somebody that I was dating who I ended up marrying um, seven years later. And that definitely helped. So I have to tip my hat and credit her. We're still really close friends. So, so Amina definitely helped. Uh, but then again, my claim to fame is, Sam, that you can date the model, but you got to put some good stuff out there. So that endorsement only lasts like one season or two seasons. And you're, then you're like, you know, Mr. Hug. But. So uh, could you lead me up to 1432 and, and how, how you started that company? Ten years into living this life, I was 32 years old and had an early midlife crisis because I really sold out and did a billboard campaign. I was on billboards in Pakistan endorsing a telecom company just so I could afford an apartment that my actress wife wanted to stay in. And uh, I remember we were, it was a Sunday and we were grabbing breakfast at a grocery store and somebody from the other aisle commented on how different she looks now 10 years in and how her younger husband is, you know, whatever. And at that moment, on a Sunday afternoon, I was like, this can't be my life because I love the craft 
And I was very involved in the messaging, the avenue or the messaging system it encapsulates and how you can interact with people and arm clothing with, you know, little snippets of awareness. And I just said to her, I was like, that's what it's going to be. And I, I want something different. So I just came home and I was like, I've always wanted to go to art school. And 9-11 happened. I never really pursued fashion. It's been 10 years. So I just, I applied to Parsons and I was the first brown kid to come into the master's program. They only pick 18 people from the world. I just made up my mind, Sam, on my 10-year mark. And I, without telling anybody, I did my last show. And uh, I left thinking I'd go away for two years and come back, just take a break to reflect on what fashion means. And if I'm just going to be doing billboards for telecom commercials. And my thesis at Parsons was 1432. Those two years, Sam, changed me because it, it helped me find that meaning that I was looking for. So my sister's a human rights lawyer in Pakistan. And during the Obama years, she was working on getting 30 Pakistanis who had been held without trial in an American-run prison in Afghanistan home. She was saying, either try these people, charge them if you have proof, or send them home. When I was looking for meaning and tired of like the glitz and glamour of fashion and trying to find something that had authenticity and craft and purpose, I just got out of fashion and hung out with a bunch of journalists who were helping my sister get these stories covered and the American press wasn't really covering these stories. A mother of one of those prisoners who had been held since he was 16 handed me a letter saying, read this out to the quote unquote American people to let my son go. And I said, listen, I'm an art school kid hanging out with journalists, just finding meaning. Who am I supposed to speak to? She had nobody to speak to. She just said, just tell anybody, you live in America, don't you? And I came back and on my fashion show, 1432 was about looking at the world and not in a one, two, three, four way and realigning or recalibrating the sequence of how we perceive information. Before there was any product, Sam, 1432 was born as a philosophy of housing counter narratives and to actively, courageously listen on a platform. That's the sentiment that it was born, which sounds very heavy and emotional. This is the backstory of how it was born and the state of mind that I was in. It was meant to be a philosophy that just gets people to listen courageously to counter narratives. And how did that company develop into, you know, what it is today? Oh, man. So it was hard, as you've heard, you know, like. We've had a tremendous past two years and three years. We are a COVID phoenix, as I like to call it. We have we have one of the companies that have survived, not only survived, but bloomed from 2014 to 2018. Those four years were brutal. We were a shoe company selling a shoe that had no left or right foot. That is a metaphor for being grounded and being one. We weren't selling. And I would refuse to take any corporate investment because I wanted to bootstrap this and really build something on our own without being pushed and forced into growth, growth, growth before we were net profitable. I slept a lot of nights and woke up a lot of mornings not knowing what to do, but still being functional. And the one thing that I feel entrepreneurs have to master, Sam, is this ability to be functional and keep going without knowing whether you're in even driving in the right direction. Keeping your foot on the gas 
without knowing whether you're heading the right way, but just making sure the car is running and staying afloat and doesn't shut down is a very important pivotal skill to have as an entrepreneur and how you mitigate risk and stomach it. We were still a shoe company that was struggling, but we were lean. And our messaging was more about the philosophy of how we split 50% of our profits, which is a very tall ask because I was, I was able to pivot from that into another product without diluting the brand because at the end of the day, our brand was more about our pledge rather than a singular product, right? It wasn't the Uggs or the Toms or anything. It's about how we say one for one in dollars and cents. We make a dollar, we got to give a dollar back to our cause. Nobody does that, right? And there are so many social impact companies, whether it's Red Bull or Tom's or whatever, who are just donating product or who are saying, you know, we give this percentage of our revenue. We're like, no, 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 there's no percentage. Half. We got to match what we make with what we give away. That's the only way where we feel we're fair, right? So the pandemic happened. I thought we were going to shut down. I tried to save the jobs of my artisans who are like my family. I taught them online how to sew hoodies and sweatshirts, which is not because I thought loungewear was going to be successful. It's because that's what my family did before, right? That's what I grew up doing. And so that's what you knew how to do. Yeah. Yeah, I knew how to do it. So because I was trying to save jobs, generally it takes one person to sew a t-shirt, right? It's a very simple thing to do. Shoes take like four different artisans. Shoes are more technical. So I added a lot of hand detailing so people could get employed. That became the unicorn signature of our stuff that we make handmade streetwear and sportswear. And we blew up. Everybody during COVID was going over the digital space trying to promote themselves. So the digital marketplace just became really expensive to draw attention because people couldn't go out. And I was like, we can't afford to run ads. Like, I just don't, we don't have that money. So I was like, why can't we just be old school and just talk to people? And maybe our stuff is so compelling, not our product, but what we're doing. So I just went there with two hangers at a flea market in Brooklyn and just selling people. And people are like, wait, you're a professor at Columbia University in Parsons and you're here on the weekend peddling $80 hoodies? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, why? Because I was like, because I got to save these jobs because these people have nobody. Our country doesn't have any stimulus package. And people just came out in droves and we grew like 10x. Wow. It's been crazy. If you stay in the game and you stay afloat long enough, the market will turn in your favor and you will make enough pivots to get it right, the product market fit. A lot of times folks who raise a ton of money early on, they're not as critical about their expenses and their overheads and their running costs. So one lesson is just staying lean and not net profitable is just good business in my opinion. Yeah. This idea of top line growth and like a big ski jump is like, it's like for folks who want to invest in something and be out of it in five years, right? We didn't build this company to be out of it five years. We wanted to build a legacy lifestyle brand. So think approaching it that way in terms of our operational expenses, then I think that's one of the lessons I would definitely pinpoint to. That's one, right? I also learned that at the end of the day, Sam, I am in the fashion business and none of my narrative and not everything that I embody in terms of storytelling can be a crutch for people just not liking my product. At the end of the day, if somebody doesn't look at my product and say, I want to have it without having known Amar, spoken to Amar, known the product, if it doesn't draw that kind of crazy attention, I don't have a business. It's, I'm, we are ambitious, but again, I always refer back to our mission statement and be like, why are we doing this? 
What is the larger purpose? What is a long-term vision of what we're doing this? And if you're into building something that has a long-term lasting power, then you got to be patient with your growth and how it comes to you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Burkle, Matt Fernandez, Renee B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, David Saidi, Ashley Jimenez, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong. With support from Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan, Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Hagelin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Aiden Ashworth, Nikki Mukawa, Sylvie Wong, and Eric Menno. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Tiffany Dang, Yao Liu, and Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.